episode 116 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Uh, my name is Sammy Mason. I'm 26 years old. I'm a former Red Bull Air Race pilot and current professional airshow pilot and corporate pilot. Aviation Nation, what is going on? Welcome back to episode number 116 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. This episode in this week is going to be an air race week. So I have three air racers lined up back to back to back. And I think this is the only type of flying I might not have ever talked about. If you can think of anything else I haven't talked about, email me so we can get them on. Sammy was more than willing to come on and share his story, share a story about becoming a Red Bull air race pilot, uh, about uh, how he built up his career, what he was doing while he was in training, how an air racer even thinks about training and uh, getting their their ratings and all they want to do is go race. Uh, it is really interesting to talk to an air racer and just mentality and they like to go upside down they like to go fast i mean a lot of pilots do but even more so them and how i've gotten uh, an overwhelming consensus that they're more comfortable being upside down than flying an ifr approach down to minimums which is pretty funny and pretty crazy to think about but uh, i hope you enjoy this episode if you do please leave us a review on itunes you can follow us on instagram at pilot the pilot you can also check out our website pilot the pilot hq.com we have links to all of our sites instagram twitter patreon or you can go to uh, buy me a coffee so you can support the show if you'd like whatever it may be there. But Aviation, I want to take up much more of your time. I'm on the road right now. I'm in Houston Hobby. I'm recording this in the FBO. I'm trying to be quiet while people are staring at me. But uh, I'm getting ready to head out to Panama City. I hope you guys are all starting to fly again. I hope we are all still staying safe. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Sammy Mason. So any further ado, here is Sammy Mason. Sammy, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. Excited to have you on. I'm excited to share your story. You are really going to be the first of your kind, I will say. Uh, I've never talked to anyone that has competed in aerobatics before, so I'm excited to kind of talk a little more about that. Awesome. Yeah. What do you, what do you want to know, man? Yeah, well, we'll start from the beginning. We'll start from uh, why did you originally become a pilot? What was the original inspiration? Well, you know, I kind of joked that I didn't have any choice in becoming a pilot. Uh, I'm a third-generation third pilot. Uh, my grandfather was a pilot uh, as World War II uh, instructor pilot. After the war, he bought a surplus steerman and mounted a Jado bottle to it. Started doing air shows. Became a test pilot for Lockheed. Uh, was the first person to loop a helicopter, and he's done a he's done a bunch of really amazing things. So uh, he had eight kids. My dad uh, obviously is one of them, and uh, my dad's a pilot. My mom's a pilot. Cousins are pilots. So when I was little, actually, I didn't wasn't that interested in being a pilot. Um, I'd, I'd rather be at the skate park or surfing or something. And then it wasn't until I was like maybe 11 years old that I really wanted to learn how to fly. So I started learning how to fly. And, and my mom's Piper Cub that we still have is still my favorite airplane of all time. So yeah, I guess I just kind of got got lucky with growing up in an aviation family and and uh, didn't really have a choice. And have been kicked pilot. out of the family if you didn't become a pilot, huh? Exactly. <laughs> as all your family members, do they fly professionally or do they fly for fun or is it just kind of a mix? Uh, kind of a mix, yeah. I'd say all of the above. Um, my dad's had an interesting career in aviation. Uh, started uh, as flight instructor and then um, went to work for Grand Canyon Airlines and Scenic Airlines, flying twin otters. And uh, he was a corporate pilot for, for Lockheed as well. And then... Him and my mom started their own business at the airport, rebuilding antique airplanes uh, before I was born. Yes, yeah, so now he's just flies for fun. Um, but yeah, there's oh, yeah, my cousins are uh, corporate pilots, and yeah, I guess I guess it's a mix. That's awesome. I mean, that sounds like a great family to be born into, and uh, aviation royalty. I mean, that's what you guys got going on there. Your grandpa sounds like he's pretty cool. I have a similar story where my uh, my grandpa was in World War II. My dad's a pilot as well, but. Aviation was never kind of thrown in my face. Never flew a plane until I was 21. And then that's when I decided to, to become a pilot. So it's kind of funny how we can both be third generation pilots, but our life and our story can be just a little bit different. Yeah. I, you know, I actually haven't met too many third generation pilots. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, here we are. <laughs> how old were you when you first started your training? Well, that's a hard question. I, I took my first ever airplane ride with, uh, with my mom when I was uh, two days old, I was in, uh, in like 
one of those like you know newborn kind of like belly contraptions where they hold the the baby up against their chest. I was in one of those, and my mom took me around the patch in her Piper Cub. And then when I was a little kid, I'd always grab onto the stick and try to land, and I couldn't reach the puddles. So my parents would would do the puddles, but I would I'd try to land. And but I would say like really started focusing on learning how to fly when I was I was like probably ten ten years old. That's crazy. It's such a difference. And, and I mean, a lot of people do start flying when they're younger, but just the access that you had and you might take it for uh, the first or the youngest kid to be in an airplane on their, on their quote unquote first flight lesson at two, two days old. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my buddy actually just recently had a, had a kid and, and, uh, he took his wife up in the front seat of his pits, but I think, I think she was closer to six days old. That's crazy. But, yeah. That was still pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Yeah. It's gotta be a good moment for them to share. Uh, so you're 10, you are, I mean, obviously can't do like too much training or take any like solo or take your check ride, but were you getting everything done as much as you could? Were you preparing for a career in aviation or were you still kind of the mindset? Like I like surfing. I like other things. I don't know if I want to do this for a profession. Um, no, I think right when I started flying and like actually, you know, in a real learning environment with my dad as my instructor, I was like, uh, I basically was like, holy shit, I want to be an, I want to be an airbag pilot. Like I want to be an airshow pilot. At 10 or at, at a very young age? At 10. Yeah, I did. I did a, my first role with my dad when I was, you know, I, I think 10 ish around that age when it was actually me doing it. And I was like, I need to do this. So, so I didn't really care about like getting cross country hours or, or, you know, getting turns around a point dialed in. Like I, all I want to do is, was fly the cub and, and, you know, shoot landings and, aerobatics with my dad and the steerman and so i mainly yeah i mainly just flew uh <laughs> flew the cub a lot all i wanted to do is was do that go upside down yeah yeah what was it like having a dynamic with your dad who's also being your flight instructor i mean it's got to be kind of uh an interesting working and family relationship you got going on right there it was tough uh <laughs> i remember one time uh my dad like swears he didn't do this but he did i we were, we were landing and I can't, no, maybe I'm trying to remember it was either take off and landing and I was just all over the place. And he'd been, we've been doing drills where I'd go down the right side of the runway, move over the center line. And I just could not do it. I remember he turned around he had something in his hand. He whacked me across the head. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Another time we, I did something wrong taxiing. I think I had this stick in the wrong position or, or something. I wasn't diving away from the wind and, and he just made me turn around and go back to the hangar and parked it. <laughs> so we're done. <laughs> yeah, we're done. that's interesting. I mean, it's definitely got to be interesting with a, a father and son because there's a different dynamic than just instructor or even friend. It's like you can kind of tell right away when when you're giving it your all. I'm sure your dad could tell when you when you weren't ready for it. And he's like, "Screw this! I'm not wasting my time with this kid right now." Yeah, yeah, but I, I will say my dad's the the best flight instructor I've ever had to this day. So that's awesome. How many flight <laughs> instructors did you have, or when did? I guess the better question is when did you switch to a different kind of flight instructor? Uh, well, right when I was getting to, uh, ready to solo the glider when I was 14, um, my dad didn't have his glider CFI. So a friend of his, uh, Cindy Brickner, came down, and uh, she kind of got me ready for solo the glider. We did about a week course with her, and, and I've had different instructors for my uh, private commercial instrument. Because my, dad, my dad's kind of like me. He just likes like flying airplanes. I mean, a long time since he put somebody through a rating. So he's like, nah, you should probably, you know, he's like, I'll teach you how to fly where you get the, the stick and rudder, but you need someone to teach you how to pass a check ride type of exactly. thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. I, I could totally see that. I feel like I'm not a CFI, but that's the route that I would go. If I ever kid, it's like, I can teach you how to fly, but if you want to pass a check ride, you know, you need to uh, go to someone else. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, um, so yeah, so you're flying when you're younger, you kind of know you want to be an aerobatic pilot. What's the, what's the process for you? You said like, you're not really too worried about steep turns or turns around a point or just circling out there and putzing around. What was, how did you get through your training? What, what, what did you use to like kind of get through the mundane parts of training? Uh, just, just the end goal, you know, I like it. Well, I have to do, you know, do this stuff so I can get my commercial and start flying air shows. So that's, that was motivation for that. How young were you when you went to your first air show and you're able to see, I guess you're probably really young, but when you could actually remember uh, and you can see the first person doing a loop, when you can see these crazy things they're doing, do you remember that moment pretty well? You know, it's funny. I never thought about that. And then you asked me the question I was thinking back and I remember it was Point McGill Air Show 
I don't I have no idea what year it was. I was a little kid, and uh, I saw Bill Cornick uh, do a torque roll in his S2C, and I remember thinking that was really cool. And then later on, he Bill Cornick was uh, was one of my uh, aces for uh, aerobatic competency evaluations, which was kind of cool. What's that? I, I'm, speak to me like I'm a, I'm an idiot. And I don't know anything going on with aerobatics. <laughs> so to become an airship pilot, now it's a little bit more complicated with some new regulations. But when I did it, he just needed one um, aerobatic competency evaluator. They call it ACE, and basically it's like taking a check ride. You know, we go over, sit on the ground for a couple hours, go through your sequence, kind of give you an oral about what you're going to do if your engine quits here, or there, and we have minimal altitudes and speeds for, for certain things, talk about emergencies, and then you go out and fly your sequence in front of them. And you start, first you start at 800 feet, and you go to 500, 250, and then the surface. So I started at 800 feet, and uh, you know if you break that 800-foot deck, then obviously you fail. But basically it's just a check ride for airship pilots, and it doesn't matter who you are, every year you get one. Oh, Sean every Tucker. year, so it's a yearly check ride then? Yeah. Sean Tucker, Michael Gillian, Kirby, all those guys every year, they take a check ride. Can you imagine with, being the person that has to fail them? Be like, hey, sorry, man, <laughs> you're not up to speed right now. <laughs> That'd be I an awkward conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that makes sense. Every single, you have to, to be a professional pilot for airlines or even corporate, you know, you got to take those check rides. So why not an aerobatic pilot too? Makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. When, uh, so you're going through your training, you're, uh, you totally know you want to be an aerobatic pilot. When in the process of your training, did you like solely focus on aerobatics or were you always kind of doing it on the side or was it after you're done with your commercial, you're like, all right, cool. Now I'm going to train hundred percent to be the best aerobatic pilot I can be. Now, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to just fly aerobatics when I was a little kid. So I, I got, it's kind of funny. We started flying the cub and then I couldn't sell the cub till I was 16. And I was obviously ready to go um, at, a, at a younger age than that. So I was like, Dad, you know, we need to, we need to get this uh, glider going. And we had a Switzer 222 that my parents had rebuilt um, years prior. So we, I learned to start flying that. And then when I soloed in the glider, um, I started just doing wing hours. Like I get up to altitude and I didn't care about finding thermals or, or soaring or anything. I would just do wing overs until, until I had to come back and land. And then I, uh, I was reading up on uh, aerobatic gliders and I found a Fournier RF4, which is a um, self-launching sailplane is its technical technical name, but it's it's just a motor glider basically with has a Volkswagen engine and it's uh, fully aerobatic. This is built built in the 60s. And I was like, oh man, there's no way that you know this is real, like a full-on airbag airplane, single C that I could fly at 14 years old. So I did some research and I found a, one in Santa Barbara in pieces. And uh, I ended up uh, getting a loan from one of the guys on the airport here. He gave me a $10,000 loan to buy this glider when I was 14. And we went and bought it. And my parents' business is rebuilding antique airplanes. So we rebuilt it in about a year. And, uh, and then I started at 14 years old flying the single seat aerobatic airplane, basically. And uh, I had taken, obviously, aerobatic instruction from my dad and Mike Dewey and other people. Um, so I knew the basics and how to recover from all the spins and everything, but I pretty much just went out there and taught myself how to fly aerobatics when I was 14 in, the, in this single seat glider. Did you have any moments you're like, all right, we're not doing that again. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, the, the only scary thing I had in the, was I had a, I got two, they didn't have an inverted system. So if you flew upside down, if you went negative G at least, the uh, engine would quit. And I got a little too slow on the top of the loop. Um, so at low airspeed and that with like maybe a tenth of a negative G and the engine quit. No, without enough airspeed over the prop to keep it windmilling, the prop stopped. And I was about 2,000 feet, maybe five miles from the airport. And I had to make that decision. Like, well, do I dive and try to get the prop windmilling and start again and kill all my airspeed? Or do I just head, head, toward, head towards the airport? And, you know, luckily... It still had a 18 to one glide ratio. So I ended up getting back to the airport. No problem. Uh, but that was like kind of my first real somewhat emergency. You're going to have a, an engine failure in any type of plane. It's probably going to be in a, or the one you'd want it is the type of glider you're flying. I'm guessing. Yeah. Absolutely. 18 to one glide ratio is a pretty good thing to have on your side. Yep. Yeah. What, did, what was your thought process after that? Did that scare you at all? Were you ready to go back up and do it again and make sure you didn't do the same thing? Uh, it was, it was eye opening. For sure. I mean, at 14, like 
you know, it, if you look at the average 14 year old, just the like decision-making skills <laughs> aren't very good. Um, so I was happy with, with how that worked out, but I would, it was kind of an eye opener. Like I need to plan a little bit better for this kind of stuff. Yeah. So you're 14, you're flying this really cool glider that you're able to buy and talk, talk someone into giving you some money and then restore it. That's, a, that's some good experience, man. Not many 14 year olds are doing that. I think uh, most 14 year olds right now are playing Fortnite and are, uh, maybe, maybe playing like a uh, infinite flight or Microsoft flight simulator. <laughs> Yeah, they're probably kicking my butt at Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, right. But you're getting beaten Fortnite. But at least you could you could build a, a a glider when you're 14. That's pretty cool. That's something I haven't heard before. That's a that's taken a love for aviation to a whole new level, man. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What uh? What were your parents like? What was their thought process when they told when you told them or when they knew and found out that you want to be an aerobatic pilot and you want to like fully go after it? Was it like all right? Let's figure out how to do it. Or did they have any hesitation? Like you know, I mean, there's other avenues you can make in aviation. Maybe you should try to go down that route. Oh, absolutely. My, uh, my parents do not like the fact that I fly our shows. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Like my, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious that they, they wish I, you know, would just take the airline route and, and, uh, never fly an, an, a low level air show again. They're, they're cool with me flying high, but, but, you know, they've lost so many people throughout their years in aviation to air show accidents and, and other things that it's definitely a big, a big deal for them. What's the most common way an air show pilot can get themselves in trouble? Is it just, uh, recovering too low or not paying attention to altitude or is it a magnitude of things that all come together at once? I mean, usually it's kind of a snowball effect, but the biggest thing that I see is just people uh, not following their routine and not having, not following their altitude gate. So for every routine uh, in my air show and hopefully everybody's air show routine is you have, you know that you need, let's say for a, you know, a hammerhead, you need 180 miles an hour. And, you know, 250 feet at the bottom and they need to be at 1200 feet at the top to safely recover. And if you don't have those things met, then you, you know, you don't do the maneuver. So I think a lot of people get to like, oh, I need to do this as part of my, you know, routine. And I don't quite have the energy, but I think, I think it'll work out kind of mentality because they don't want to, they don't want to abort their, their show, which was, you know, stupid. Yeah. No, kind of an ego thing that might come up. But I mean, like at the end of the day, it's definitely worth you walking away from, you know? Yeah. And, you know, as, as long as, as long as you don't have that, like, Hey, hold my beer, watch this mentality. <laughs> You'll be right. Yeah. As long as you follow the routine and the airplane's well maintained and you have an out and you practice a lot. I think the biggest thing is just flying a lot. Yeah. Air, air show season, you know, I'll fly five or six days a week. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, flying around, flying, it kind of goes with everything in aviation. You're more proficient. You kind of can anticipate things better. You're kind of more one with the airplane, the more you fly and the more you go up. What was next after uh, C-14, you build this kind of powered glider with your family? What was next? What was kind of the next process for you? Was it to get your solo and fly a powered airplane, get back in the Cub? It was just wait until I was 16. <laughs> was was that kind of the next step? And then uh, I turned 16, and on my 16th birthday, um, I soloed 10 different airplanes. 10 different airplanes? Airplane. Yeah. That's Everybody, all our buddies on the airport and people from out of town, they all flew in and they all let me fl- uh, solo their solo their airplane, sold a bunch of different cubs. And the um, most interesting thing I soloed was probably uh, my dad's ag cat that he had at the time, which was a single seat, you know, big 450 horsepower biplane. They sold that, sold a Mooney Mite that a, a friend had flown down another single seat airplane. So you're just ready to fly anything. You're like, whatever, bring it down. Where's the hawker at? Where's the, where's the challenger? Let's go fly. I think I had, I'll have to look at my log, but I think I had probably about 600 hours when I, would, when I turned 16. That's crazy. That's intense, man. Yeah, no, I, I think you're the only person I've ever talked to as well that's uh, that's flown 10 airplanes on their on their 16th birthday when they're allowed to solo. I was literally about to ask you, like, hey, did you solo on your birthday? And you're like, yeah, uh, hold my beer. I did six, or I did 10 of them. <laughs> that's my, cool. That was back when we, you had the, the medical slash student pilot certificate. Yeah. And I... I still have that somewhere and it's just riddled with endorsements. Like, <laughs> You're probably cool. the only one that ever had those endorsements on that thing. Yeah. What kind of airplanes are flying right now? Uh, yeah, that was above. I'm sitting kind of in the middle of my hangar right now, so I don't have a, a great view. Sounded sound like maybe a super cut though. 
That's cool. Where uh, do you live on an airport grounds? Obviously, or you just had a, hang- a local hangar or your hangar that you own, or what? Where are you at right now? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in my hangar. I live in a, a hangar apartment um, on the airport here. So my living room is my pits, and when I wouldn't ask for anything else. Literally living and sleeping a- or aviation right now, huh? Yep. <laughs> All right. So you're 16. You're going back. Uh, you're soloing everything you can possibly solo. When did you get your private? Uh, 17th birthday, took my private pods, uh, check ride and my mom's, uh, steerman. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm sure, uh, most DPs don't get a check ride and a steerman. Yeah, it was pretty funny. We, I had to do the, like the hood stuff in the, or the VOR stuff, whatever it was in the, in the 150. So I took off, did, got that out of the way and then landed. Then we got in the steerman and I uh, went and did the, did the flight. Now on the way back, actually. I asked the examiner, I was like, Hey, do you want to fly? <laughs> He's like, absolutely. And, and he actually flew back, uh, from the, our practice area. You probably could have done whatever you wanted. He would have been like, uh, you pass, but can I fly <laughs> or I'll pass you if I can fly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, was that his first time ever being in a steerman? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Cause that's not, I mean, some, I know people that have steermans, but I've never found myself in a situation to be able to get in one. So I'm sure that, I mean, that's definitely something anyone would take up. But that DPU is probably so happy when you're like, you want to fly a steam? You're like, oh, yeah, dude. Are you kidding me? Well, it's also like, get, huh? next, next time you're out in Southern California, look me up. I'll get you, get you up in one. Let's do it, man. That'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, so you're doing that. You took your check right at a steerman, which uh, that's just crazy and blows my mind. That's awesome. Uh, instrument, I'm guessing, really quick after that. Commercial, pretty quick after that because you already had the time for everything. So you just had to knock out the maneuvers and you'd be ready to go. The instrument, actually, I could care less about, and that, that took a while. Uh, I think I was 20, 20 or 21 when I got my instrument rating. Okay. So did you go commercial first, then instrument, or did you just yeah. kind of... Okay. Yeah, I got... I'm getting my heads. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. When I was 16, I got my glider private. They can get it 16. Then I actually did my first air show here at Sample Airport when I was 16 years old. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. How was that? Uh, that was awesome. Yeah, it was a dream come true for me. Fly my first airship at my home airport in the motor glider. I couldn't get paid, obviously, because they had my commercial. But um, that was that was definitely a a good memory for me. Yeah, for sure. And parents go there, and they're there to support you, hoping you don't do too many low level flights. Exactly. Yeah, that's thing, man. That's really cool. I didn't even when I was even starting to fly. I never. I don't even think I even thought about aerobatics. Like I don't know because I was never really introduced to it. I wasn't around it. Like you were kind of around all those airplanes and you were kind of able to have access to those. And it's just interesting to see as a pilot, as you're growing up and what you grow up around and not even like grow up as a human, but grow up like as a pilot. So what you grew up around kind of gave you this access and it gave you this great opportunity to go and uh, fly some really cool things and do some really cool things and have some dreams that maybe some other people don't have. Yeah, I definitely, definitely very thankful for Growing up in the place I did with the with the family I have, it's definitely helped me helped me quite a bit. Do you think like what's the how? I mean, I, like I said, I don't know if many people even know about becoming aerobatic pilots or professional ones. So be it and to go compete, is it pretty common? I mean, obviously, it'd probably be more common for you because you see them more often. But do you see a lot of kids? Do you see a lot of uh, y- the younger generation wanting to be like you or or like the others? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I mean, there's there's a few really good up and coming young young aerobatic pilots right now. Um, Nicholas Kane's one of them. I remember he called me when I was, I mean, I'm, I was probably 20 or 21 and he didn't even have his private yet. And he was, I don't know, 16 or 17 or something like that. And, and now he's, he's rebuilding pitches and he's winning intermediate contests. So um, Alex, Alex Huey, he's doing good. I mean, there's, there's a few young guys that are coming up um, trying to, don't want to miss any, yeah. But there's <laughs> no pressure, man. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's going to be like, Hey man, what about me? Yeah. What the heck? Uh, That's but, funny. Uh, yeah. My, my buddy, Evan Byrne is at core. Um, but it's, it's hard to get into me. I mean, it's obviously expensive and you know, I, I don't even want to know how much I, I spend flying my pits and competing. I, feel, I figure if I, people always ask me, well, how much hourly, like what's the hourly rate on your plane? You know, I'm like, dude, I don't even want to know. Yeah, like, please I don't, don't ask me. Yeah, like I don't add it up. I know how much my insurance costs and hangar and, and how much fuel costs. And I don't want to, you know, yeah. I know that I pay it at the end of every month and I still can still can operate the next month. So I'm doing all right. And that's all yeah. I need to know. But yeah, you know, it's expensive. So you, know, you really have to live and breathe it to, to do it, especially when you're young. 
but there's definitely people think it's like a you know a rich person sport and it really isn't you know i bought my pits s1s um for twelve thousand bucks it was it was crashed um again the family business helped when we rebuilt it but it's probably worth the price of a a, a cheap new car you know it's probably a thirty thousand dollar airplane right now and i've won an unlimited aerobatic contest against half million dollar extras in, in my my thirty thousand dollar pits so it's it's definitely doable you just have to you kind of have to go out there and do it and just take a risk take a chance i mean yeah it is you you do have a good situation where your family can help you rebuild an airplane not everyone has access to that but you're right i'm sure there are ways that you can get into it and there are other ways to if money if you're going to keep money as a factor most people that are afraid to go into it because of that maybe they'll come up with other excuses as well so you definitely just got to go for it and just try it if you can find a way to get the money for it and go after it. Absolutely. And there's also scholarship opportunities too. My, my friends over at the figure one foundation, um, check them out. Figureonefoundation.com. They have, uh, multiple scholarships, tailwheel scholarships, uh, upset recovery scholarships. And they're, uh, they're an awesome group based out here in Santa Paula and you'll get to fly a pits S2A. If you get the scholarship and you know, that'll open doors for you as well. Yeah, that's really cool. That That is a great opportunity. And uh, I've never heard of that before. So I'm guessing a lot of other people have heard it before. So hopefully you get a lot of hits and they get a lot of applications for the next scholarship. And uh, maybe I'll beat them all to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be competing against you next year. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, so yeah, what is a typical route for a aerobatic pilot? So someone that wants to compete, is it similar to you? Where obviously we talked about you, you and the other kid, I can't remember his name now, but he was 16 calling you and before he had his private, but usually do they have this love and want for this kind of type of flying at a young age and then they just go after it and start competing when they're young? Or is there some people that are later in life that compete and get into it a lot later? What's kind of a typical route and progression for someone that gets into this? Um, that's a good question. There's flight schools that have, that take airplanes to aerobat competitions. So that's a route as well. You can rent an airplane, but aerobat competition really is just to get, get your name out there and, and have a safe, um, structured start to your aerobatic career because there's no, there's no money in competition. You know, I joke that all my, all my plaques on from aerobat competitions, competitions on my wall are, are worth, you know, a couple of thousand bucks each just for the contest. It's really expensive. Um, but once you get your name out there, like, a, you know, especially at nationals and then you can move on and have a better, better reputation going into air shows, which actually start paying money. And then, you know, eventually when I got into the Red Blair race, um, you know, that was, that was a real, real big step. And I wouldn't have gotten there unless I had, um, good competition experience. So getting into uh, a Red Bull air race is kind of just paying your dues and having a good reputation and obviously performing well. Yeah. To get into the air race, there's, there's a ton back when it was a thing. I, <laughs> I still hurts to talk about it, not being around, but, um, w- when the Red Bull race was going on, there was a, a criteria of what you needed to qualify to be a candidate to go to a camp. And it, yeah, basically there is multiple ways to get into it. They wanted you to be like top 50% of the world in competition. And I've never flown a world competition. I couldn't afford to ship my airplane out there and, and do all that. And there's a few other guys who hadn't either. So they added in, if you've flown any major uh, air shows, so Oshkosh, um, obviously, you know, you have to be well qualified and EA is not going to let just any, anybody fly Oshkosh. So that's how I got my qualification was my airbag reputation being on the advanced team, um, and doing well at nationals and then flying Oshkosh and also knowing a few of the guys who put in a good word for me. Um, that's how I got in. They definitely, if you didn't have the competition background, all those guys had competition backgrounds. So when you make it to the Red Bull Air Race and when it was a thing, and like you said, it sucks that it's not right now, but when you made it there, did it feel like you made it to the big leagues? I'm guessing this is kind of the feeling of someone getting drafted out of high school and making it to the to majors and going through the minor system and like, you're finally here. Could you tell that like this was way different than anything you've done before? Oh, absolutely. It was my childhood dream come true. You know, when I got the call to go to the training camp, I was, I was just beyond myself. And then the training camp, there's, I mean, there's people in my training camp who, who didn't pass and, you know, weren't able to compete in the air races. So to get past the training camp, which was a two week long, pretty in depth process, not just how you, how you fly, but we also had a psych exam. We had a couple, couple different weird kind of, um, psychological stuff that we had to go through. So to finally 
like pass the course, pass all that stuff and get the phone call. Welcome to the Red Boy Race was, yeah, dream come true. What's, so what's like, a day look like for you in, your, in the training camp? Like, it's like wake up at 6 a.m. and you're at the airport all day, flying all day, doing tests, doing a bunch of stuff, or is it kind of hit or miss on the time and you go here and then you come back and you go, like, what, what did a day look like in those two weeks? Uh, at first, the first uh, week we were, it was actually around the Budapest Air Race uh, 2018. So we just kind of met everybody at the Air Race and got to see how everything works how the scoring works, how the setup and takedown works, just kind of like see the, the behind the scenes of it and then be part of the, just the race week kind of there. And we met with, we met with the, the doctor, Rebel. They had a, just a two, they actually had three. They had a psychologist, a normal doctor and a, like a physical therapist that would travel with the air race. So we met with them, um, and we had to have a bunch of medical stuff done before we even went there, like a full CT scan, um, to, or maybe, maybe it wasn't a CT. It was a full, where they have, you're in that tube, I'm trying to remember the name of it. But basically, it was to check, check the, your back for, for like a baseline before you pull a bunch of Gs. So I met with them, went over medical stuff, uh, met with a psychologist. That was, that was the weirdest part for me. Um, and then... Um, after the Budapest race, we went to um, Slovenia, and that's when the flying started. And we started up high and kind of worked our way down into the track and did a bunch of different stuff. So you would travel. So when you get selected in training camp, you're still traveling with uh, with uh, with Red Bull and, and kind of following them along, but you're doing your training in different cities as you go? Uh, not really. So it was, Budapest was just kind of like convenient start for it. So we were there for the race. We saw them behind the scenes, and then we drove to Slovenia and that was when our full training camp started like the flying aspect. Is it a uh, competitive uh, dog eat dog world where people are trying to like throw you under the bus and trying to do everything they can to get on top of the, the competition? It's competitive. Um, we were all, we we're all nice, but you know, we definitely, there's a little competitive edge here and there. And uh, one of the guys um, kept, kept hitting pylons. <laughs> so we were kind of, we were giving him a hard time. That's funny. What's the hardest part about going on a Red Bull Air Race? Because obviously that's a, a little bit different than uh, you putting on a perfor- performance, essentially, in an air show. This is, uh, you kind of, it's just a little bit different. What's uh, the different mindset you have to go through that? Just speed, 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 and try to make sure you get through as fast as possible? Um, mindset, I mean, was a huge part of how I performed in the track. Like, if I was nervous and, and wasn't confident, then I would not fly good. So you just had to be be really confident and and have have a good mental image of, of the angles that you needed through certain gates, and uh, yeah, it was it was a lot a lot of mental. What what makes you most nervous, or what is the what would make a pilot most nervous going to an air race? Is it just uh, the anticipation of the f- of flying, or the the competition itself? You know, just a lot of things weighing on you, or what kind of makes someone nervous in that situation? Oh man, let me know. <laughs> All of the above, I guess. I mean, just you know, the Russia race, we are t- flying off a, a racetrack. We're flying off a, a straightaway of uh, a, like a race car track in Russia that was built in the bottom of an old gravel pit. So you're just in this hole and you take off on this narrow straightaway with, you know, guard fences on the left and like a judging station, towers and all kinds of just obstacles you, you take off and you come out of this gravel pit and then you're in you're in russia <laughs> you know never flown in russia before uh, with no gps or anything just like a printed out paper map of where the the racetrack is and then off to our left there was a military base and in the briefing they're like if you land at this military base you we're not going to get you back <laughs> we have all that stress and then once you get up and actually find the racetrack for the first time then you have to worry about you know, flying at 50 feet off the ground, 220 miles an hour and pulling 10 G's and not hitting these inflatable pylons that you have about three feet of clearance off each wingtip if you're directly straight through it, which you never are. So there's just so much stress involved. And it was, that was the hardest part was just being able to, once you get cleared in the track, kind of get rid of all that extra stuff and focus on the task at hand. Did anyone ever get lost and couldn't find the track or is that not a common thing? Oh no, that happened. (laughs) That happened more than people admit. Yeah. You have to, have because the the way our um, data worked in the in the airplane, the um, judges could see our position. So we just 
I never had to do it, but other people would call and be like, Hey chief, can you give me a, just a, a vector here? Like I'm having a hard time there. Like, yeah. Turn, you know, 30 degrees left, look for that big Brown field, you know, it's to the right or, or something similar, you know, and just to give us an idea because you come out of a racetrack and you're just a hundred percent focused on, um, flying the fastest line and not hitting pylons. You're not thinking about anything else. And it's just a minute of an insane adrenaline rush and you come out of the track and then you're like, okay, now I got to go find this racetrack <laughs> that's in a gravel hole, you know, 15 miles away. That's great. I never thought about not having GPS. I just, I mean, whenever I think an airplane, I automatically assume GPS. But when it comes to to flying what you're doing, I'm guessing kind of lightweight, you know, you didn't want the extra weight of that going in there. And then just the design of the airplane might not have allowed for that. So that's definitely an interesting part that I never really thought about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's not like you could take out your phone and use for flight in Russia. So it would be hilarious. Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, another, <laughs> yeah, we need to, we need to talk to four flight and get that working huh? It wasn't as bad as the Abu Dhabi race though. Cause that was a, there is, there is a sheiks that have their own palace in, in Abu Dhabi that had surface to air missiles. And the, in the briefing, we had our map, our paper map, and there's these big red circles over the, the mosques that, that we couldn't fly over because they had, they had surface to air missiles and, and the palaces. Stop. No way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How so, yeah, close we, would you get to them? Or how did you, how could you even pick them out? Well, there's, you take off at the, the main international airport there. And then you turn right down the, down the coast and we, we just follow the coastline down until we got to the city and you can see the track. But, but off to the right and left of us, if we weren't right on over the coastline were these uh, private, you know, palaces with, sheiks and these missiles and <laughs> I, d- I mean i don't know if they actually would have shot at us but just knowing that they had them and not to fly overfly them was was enough to yeah i'm not to- trying to i'm not trying to mess with that i'm not trying to get shot at exactly how many cities did you compete in um you know unfortunately i only had i only had two two races um well i had technically i had three races um but i competed once in the opener in abu dhabi and then i had a double header race in russia and Did you like it. one or the other one more than the other, or was it they both kind of equally fun and equally as exciting for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're I like the racetrack in Russia a lot better. Um, I think I like Russia, just the the racetrack experience and and the the actual racetrack that we use as an airport, and then also the racetrack um, that we use for the air race were really cool. It was a it was a pain pain in the butt to get there though that's for sure. <laughs> how was um uh, how how did you compete? How did you do? Did you do well? Um yeah, actually uh I got second place in uh, in Russia on my first race and and I was I was stoked. And I had to fly the next day my my race seat was just soaked in champagne and it reeked. <laughs> it's crazy. What um what like I'm guessing I don't know exactly how everything works is it a a competition throughout the race and like you build points and you kind of have a point system and whoever has the most points at the end wins or is it each individual race is kind of just a new day and a new champion yeah so there's it's uh similar to f1 so you get points for for each each race depending on how you do and then at the end of the year the person with the most points uh wins the championship gotcha so you were there for two races then yeah and then you know we found out that the air race was ending um, before we even went to Russia. So they kind of got rid of the point system and it was, it was just a race by race. Just kind of have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that stinks. I hate to hear that because it sounds like such a great opportunity. And obviously you're, you're starting to make a little name for yourself. You know, you came in second and you're just doing your thing. And then they had to go ahead and, uh, obviously pull the plug on it. I mean, that must've been pretty, that must've sucked. Like you must, that I'm guessing going through that probably, uh, was pretty hard. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. Um, is you know you finally get there and and you know you can make a, a successful career uh, at the time being a Red Bull Air Race pilot. So did you know financially and and just a childhood dream. Everything was coming together, and then and then to have it taken away was tough. Was it a financial decision by uh, by Red Bull or by everyone that that makes those decisions? Just they couldn't afford it anymore, or was what was the main reasoning behind it? You know, I wish I I wish we all knew. It, it was always kind of a a discussion between the pilots, like, Hey, like, what do you think actually happened? And there's rumors, but you know, I won't get into that. Um, I'm not really sure exactly what happened. Um, it just, it wasn't making money. And, uh, the owner of Red Bull from what I heard was, uh, was kind of fronting the cost, losing money. And then after a while, the board members were like, Hey, you know, we can't keep, keep doing this. So. Dang man. I hate to hear that. That's unfortunate. 
but there's, was, there's there's that it's gonna it's gonna come back. So um, you know, I've I've gotten an email from from the people who uh, are starting Air Race, which is I don't know if they've gotten all the supplies from Red Bull or not, but it sounded pretty serious, and they have a website and. And I told him if it comes back, absolutely, I'm in. So Let's we'll do see. it. Yeah, that's cool. I was gonna say, well, I wonder what the process is. I wonder if it's like, well, you got to go back to training camp, and hopefully, you get selected again. Or, hey, you already did this. Let's go ahead and make sure the best is here, and let's go after it. Yeah, I don't know. I'd I'd, lo- I'd love to see to see more people get into it, and it be a bigger thing for yeah, sure. Definitely. Well, hey, I hope it comes back, man, because that sounds like a great uh, great opportunity, and it sounds like uh, a lot of fun for you. It was, yeah, it was amazing. What? So you you get this vibe, and you know that Red Bull is going to close this down. You're there for two races. Kind of, what is your mindset on what you're going to do next? Or is it kind of just I don't know? Or are you immediately like, well, I guess I'll just go compete in air shows again? Um, yeah. Once I knew it was closing closing down, and I, I was like, well, I guess I'll just have to go get a get another real real flying job. Got to be like everyone else now. Yeah. So I, I flew um, the year before air race. I flew a Phenom 300 for. Clay Lacey Aviation 135. So I, uh, I was going to go back to work for them. And then uh, ultimately I ended up going back to work for a 91 operation closer to home, flying a Platus PC-12 and a, a Legacy 500. That's cool. Was it, is it hard for you to go back into, like say, these normal airplanes and ones that don't go 220 miles an hour over like 50 feet above the ground? Is it, is it hard for you not to want to roll one or, or just like take it as far as it can go? Uh, not really. You know, once you get in the, the work environment, you know, you just try to be, be professional and just, it's just a different type of flying. And, um, it's, it's different, but, but it can still be fun, right? Like it's still cool cruising around a PC 12 and doing some fun stuff. Yeah. I, you know, I enjoy it. It's different. I've always been a, a horrible IFR pilot, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm still, I'm still not very good at it, which is not funny, but yeah, it's, it's a different challenge for sure. What holds you up with IFR? Is it just kind of the whole thing coming together or just like knowing all the, the rules when you just want to go out and fly? Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, you know, when I turned 18, I got my commercial and then I started towing banners and flying air shows and, and I did had zero interest in sitting under the hood and learning how to fly instruments. And then when I got older, I realized I had to do this if I wanted to go make money and get a real flying, flying job, flying jets or something. So I went and got it, but I never wanted to get it. And I think that's kind of been the, the issues. Like I just did it cause I had to, and I never liked it. <laughs> uh, so I've, yeah, it's, to this day, I'm just, I'm just not good at it. When I have to shoot an approach in our Mooney, if I come back from somewhere and it's overcast, I'm like, Oh man, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. That's I, funny. Still, you know, I still get nervous flying a, flying an ILS <laughs> on Steam which is stupid and I shouldn't. But. That's funny. You get nervous flying ILS, flying a Mooney, when everyone else get nervous flying upside down, but you could fly upside down probably for hours and not care. Yeah, exactly. That's it's funny. so funny. It's funny, like what, what we kind of talked about earlier, what you're used to and what you grow up in aviation is kind of dictates, dictates what makes you nervous and what you're comfortable in. So it's really funny to hear how flying IFR, just flying an ILS, which to a lot of people can be a very simple thing because they've done it a million times, but to someone that hasn't done it as well, it is definitely a little nerve wracking and can be a little interesting. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty easy, you know, in the, in the corporate world, but find a, find a little Mooney, a family Mooney on scene gauges. It still gets me going. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would choose a, uh, a nice, uh, well-equipped, IFR equipped PC 12, uh, legacy or latitude with a G5000 over a, uh, a steam gauges in, a, in your own family Mooney, but it works. So it's good. Absolutely. Back there is approach mode to the ILS. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Plane does it all pretty much. <laughs> what, uh, what's your, what's your goal now? What's kind of like the end game for you? I mean, obviously if the air race came back, but let's just, let's just hypothet- hypothetically say that maybe the air race doesn't come back and you see yourself uh, in aviation, what's kind of the path that you could see? Is it airlines maybe? Do you like corporate? Is there a, spe- a specific type of uh, flying that sticks out to you? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't really know what's what the future has in store. Um, I can't really see myself uh, being an airline pilot. Um, I just, I, you know, I hate going to LAX. <laughs> I hate, I hate airline flying. I think the schedule in some cases would be nice, but starting off for me, it would be, it'd be kind of brutal. So I, I like my, uh, my 91 corporate gig and, and, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens, I guess in the future, but definitely would like to, um, build another, um, kind of souped up high performance air show airplane of, of some kind and be able to fly our shows and then 
um, one day if I had enough sponsors and, and stuff to be able to do only air shows, that would be, that would be great. Um, but if I'm continue to fly, uh, fly corporate on the side to pay the bills, then, then so be it. as long as I can still, still fly aerobatics and, and air shows, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure with what you've done already in your career, I'm sure that has to help with, uh, get some sponsors attention and be like, Hey, like I'm legit. Like I can go out and do this. So just let me know and give me a chance, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe you could teach the next generation of uh, young, great aerobatic pilots too. Show them how it's done. I've thought about that. I still don't have my my CFI. I need to I need to knock that out. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good thing. I feel like you could uh, offer a lot to a bunch of young and upcoming pilots. That's a good idea. Or you can make some old pilots and aerobatic pilots. You can teach pilots like me how to do uh, some cool stuff too. <laughs> Either way, sounds like a good idea, right? Yep. Yeah, that's cool, man. Well, I wish you the best and uh, almost done with the podcast. I got rapid fire section for you, but I wish you the best, man. If I could wish for anything, it'd be that Red Bull would be like, oh, we're just kidding. We're bringing it back next year, you know, and that you could go back up and you can go compete. Because, I mean, I've never been to a race, but I've always kind of flipped the channels and I saw it on TV and it's always caught my eye. And just thinking about that would be just, just doing that is, is pretty awesome. And to be an athlete to operate at such a high caliber is great too. And it, it kind of reminds me of like NASCAR, but for airplanes and stuff or F1, like you said, for airplanes. So it, it's a really cool part of flying and I hope it comes back. Absolutely. It was, it was by far the most fun and challenging thing I've done in aviation. I bet. No, definitely. It, it, the rush I bet was just insane and, and pretty cool. It was. It was nuts. All right, man. I have some rapid fire questions for you. So what this is going to entail is I'm going to ask you questions and you say the first answer that comes to your mind. No second guessing, no explanation, just the answer. Is that all right? All right. Let's go. All right. What's your favorite airplane? Uh, let's do like an airliner. What's your favorite airliner if you have to ride on one or if you could fly one? 737. What's your favorite corporate jet? Uh, Phenom 300. Piston twin. Actually, stack. No second guesses. I was going to say Saberliner. <laughs> it's too late, man. You screwed up. <laughs> what about Piston Twin? Uh, 310. Uh, Piston Single. Piper Cub. All right. What is... All right. So I get some flack for this. I don't know if you know, but I say the Piaggio is the ugliest airplane I have ever seen. Uh, no, it does nothing to do with the capabilities of the airplane, but Piaggio to me is an ugly airplane. If I ask you, do you have an ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Oh, man, that's tough. Yeah. Um, man, I'm going through a list here. Ugly airplane. Trying to think of the ugliest airplane. <laughs> we can come I'm back not- to it if you want. Yeah, come back. All right, cool. We'll come back to it. All right, here's one. What is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? <laughs> I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> that's awesome. That's even best. You knew everything, right? <laughs> All right, how about this? Let's see what you get this one. I'll do an easy one. Uh, would you rather fly on a uh, CRJ or an ERJ? ERJ. What between Piper or Cessna? What would you choose? I think I already know the answer based on what you've told me already. Actually, I go. I'll go Cessna. What? All right. Well, I'll ask you why. Why? One eighty. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Fair yeah. enough. That's a cool plane. What's your favorite airline to fly? Fly on, not fly for. Alaska. Alaska. All right. There you go. Never heard that one before. Well, obviously I'm from the Midwest and the South, so don't, not too much Alaska flying going on out there. What about favorite airline livery? Like a like an old American. Yeah. Right. Airbus or Boeing? Boeing. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? Beaches. Let's say you're flying, uh, you take your Mooney out, you just shot an approach down to IFR minimums and you're, you're freaking out, you're uh, sweating bullets. You need to go get some food to prepare to go back home. What kind of food are you going to go grab? Are you going to go grab the crew car? What are you going to go get? Mexican food for sure. Yeah. What's your least favorite airport to land at? Uh, least favorite? Teterboro. Oh, come on, man. Teterboro is the best. <laughs> What's your favorite airport to land at? Santa Paula, my home airport. Hardest check ride you've ever had? Uh, ATP. Long trips or short trips? So when I say that, I mean one long, like say you're flying a Gulfstream for 15 hours or you could do like eight short trips in one day. Short trips. Uh, the biggest win of your career so far? Uh, Red Bull Race, Russia this year, last biggest- year. Biggest regret of your career so far? 
That's a tough one. Uh, none. All right. What's your favorite thing about aviation? I have to say the community. If you could pick one person in the industry that could be living or dead, who would you want to meet most that you haven't met yet? Oh, man. You asked me. I thought you said no hard questions. <laughs> I lied. <laughs> uh, I'd say bring Hooper back. Uh, I met him, but uh, he's, uh, yeah, let's, let's have like a, a young Hooper back. There you go. That'd be cool. I just posted, I flew uh, an Aero Commander, the Shriek, the Shrike version, and uh, for I did Aero Survey. It obviously was not the same as him, but I just posted that the other day saying, uh, made Bob Hoover proud flying this bad boy. So it was, uh, I, I agree. Let's bring him back. Did you roll it? No, <laughs> this thing could barely take off. It didn't have enough power in the engines. They're so far past TBO or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, no roll on this airplane did not go well or would not have gone well. All right, I'm going to go back to it. Do you have an unglued airplane? Tiger Moth. All right. And uh, something you wish you knew before pilot became a pilot. Do we ever, we did come back to that. So there's nothing for there. All right. Nah, I think, I think that's it, man. All right, cool. Sammy, that's it, man. That's all I have for you. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Your story is definitely unique. And I think it's one that people are just going to like to listen to. And it's going to help inspire more people to want to get into this great industry that we both find jobs in. So I appreciate you coming on, man. This is going to be a good episode and uh, I hope you have a good day. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, man, no problem. Uh, have a good one. Aviation, that is a wrap of episode 116. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Like I said, I'm out on the road. So if the sound's a little bit different, forgive me. I'm talking into my camera right now. Why some people are looking at me really weird. But I uh, hope you all are having a great day and hope you're staying safe. Hope you're finding the time to fly. The weather's starting to starting to get warmer out, which is nice. It's 90 degrees everywhere. So the humidity is great. Welcome it. But Aviation, I hope you have a great day. And I will look forward to you guys listening to the next episode with Kevin Coleman.